There was a time when Jesus was teaching and people were gathered around him in a circle. But Jesus' family were outside waiting to get in and see him. They came to Jesus actually to take charge of him, presuming to interrupt what he was doing. Uh, Jesus, sorry to interrupt, but your family are outside. They want to have a word with you. But Jesus asked, who are my mother and brothers? Not being disrespectful, Jesus was just redefining what it meant to be his family. Luke tells us, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Is obedience necessary for the Christian life? Or is it just optional? Now when it comes to thinking about God, when it comes to thinking how people like us can please God, there's actually a broad spectrum of opinion out there. On one end of the spectrum is the rule keeper. The rule keeper says, if I do this, then God will do that. If I do my part, then God will respond and He will do His part. So God helps those who help themselves. That's on one end. The other end of the spectrum is a false humility that says, well, we can't meet God's standards perfectly, so why try? For such people, A.W. Tozer wrote, the Christian life is thought to be lived under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. So we can't measure up, so why try? So which is it? Is it the earnest effort of the rule keeper or the spiritual surrender of the one who knows he can't measure up? Well, the answer to that is neither one. In our passage today, we see that God does insist on obedience, but what kind? And how do we attain it? Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we return to the law of Moses this morning, and remember, as you're turning there, uh, when the ancient world had spun out of control, when men and women had revolted against God, you know, he could have condemned all of them. He, he could have wiped out the world in a global judgment, but he didn't. He graciously chose one man, Abraham, and promised that through this man, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God made Abraham into a great nation. And he promised a land flowing with milk and honey for his people. And here in Deuteronomy 8, where we are this morning, after many twists and turns and many centuries, they were finally poised to enter into the promised land. And Moses was preaching to them. Chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, 
a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The way they would enter into the land and the way that they would prosper there was to obey the voice of the Lord. You see that in verse 1, not some of the law, not just the parts they happen to agree with or personally prefer. Verse 1 says, the whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, Moses said. Now, 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai, the people had pledged to do just that. They had said there under the shadow of the mountain, we will obey all the words of this law. And in our passage today, we see the absolute necessity of obedience to God's word. Just look down at verse 2 at the end. Look at the end of verse 2 whether you would keep his commandments. Or look down at verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Or cast your eye down to verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes. And then notice how the chapter ends in the very last phrase there, Moses predicting perilous consequences because, verse 20, you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Obedience was to be a hallmark of the, the people of God. It was to characterize them. Now, don't come away from that with the misunderstanding that they somehow earned their relationship with God through Obedience, kind of like the, the rule keeper that I mentioned earlier. No, it's not that. Far from it. Obedience was a response to what God had already done in delivering these people out of slavery in Egypt, establishing a covenant relationship, and then miraculously sustaining them through this uninhabitable wilderness. They would demonstrate their loyalty to Him by doing what He said. This was the way the people would enter into the blessing of the promised land. But how would they do it? I mean, amid the many difficulties, the many trials of the promised land, how would the people remain faithful? Well, we see in this chapter two ways. Two ways they would do it. Number one, by remembering. And number two, by refusing to forget. So, Number one, positively, remembering. Number two, negatively, refusing to forget. Let's consider those two. First, it was by remembering these people would enter into the land. 
Look at verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. It was an entire generation, a whole 40 years that God subjected these people to wandering in the wilderness. You know what it was? It was an extended death penalty because the old generation did not believe God. Now, this is what we considered back in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Remember, these people had been delivered out of Egypt, preserved in the wilderness, but more than once, they actually revolted against God. Well, they tried to kill Moses. They tried to go back to Egypt. So over time, God put them to death there in the wilderness, the original generation. And the sad thing is, it didn't have to be that way. You know, the shortest route from Sinai into Palestine would have taken them only a few weeks at most, not 40 years. Now imagine what that younger generation must have thought. It must have seemed a pointless waste, an endless detour, traveling in circles around Sinai. Maybe they thought, well, if he can divide the Red Sea and deliver his people, you would think God might be a better travel agent than this. But was it really a detour? Was this a pointless wandering? Look at verse 2 again. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It wasn't rapid transportation so much as it was education that God was concerned about in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you. And when the natural props were knocked out from under them, you know, the supports of food and water and the comforts and homes were removed, well, then these people had no choice but to rely upon God. The illusion of self-sufficiency was shown to be just a fading mirage in the desert. Friends, the truth is, sometimes God tests His people. He does this to produce character. He does it ultimately to prepare us for heaven, just like a good father preparing his children. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Nowadays, people want to let God off the hook for the difficult pain in life. The thinking there is we need to protect God's reputation so that non-Christians will find Him more acceptable when trials come. And so to protect His reputation, as though God needs that, He really doesn't need our protection, what people say when trials come is, nope, God didn't see that one coming. No, He didn't intend that by, by any means. As though that's a more comforting alternative somehow. Maybe it was blind fate that determined it. Or maybe the devil determines your circumstances. I don't see that as preferable. The Bible, on the other hand, is 100% clear that God is behind not only the good things in this world, but also the hardships. Friends, this life is not a fairground. It's a battleground preparing us for the life to come. That's God's eternal perspective on our lives, and it involves testing, which is part of why we experience trials in this world, temptations, suffering, even death. I think death is a big part of our sanctification, preparing us, growing us spiritually, even in the last moments as we pierce the veil. Let me say this clearly. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no trial, there is no detour that is pointless or aimless, that isn't calculated to lead you to maturity and ultimately to heaven. Friends, th these trials are pressing us onward. And just as this generation was being shaped by the circumstances of life, so it is with us. Didn't we read that earlier in James chapter 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God actually brings trials to us. We see that in verse 3. And he humbled you. And notice this. He let you hunger. Orlando Sayer wrote a book called Big God in which he, he laid out the role of a sovereign God in things like suffering. And he explained, the point is not simply that God is still there when things are tough. It's much more than that. It's that we need the experience of suffering to avoid becoming full of ourselves, to remember to keep looking to Him for strength. And so God is prepared to bring us through hard times in order to keep that perspective in focus. Previous generations, I think, were clearer on this fact that God sovereignly leads His children sometimes through, through difficult, difficult pathways. And this is why at UCCD, we don't only sing songs that were written in the 1990s or the early 2000s. Right? We benefit from previous generations. And we actually did that earlier today in that song that we sang on page 9. Look at your bulletin. Reflect on this song that we just sang before the sermon. This is such a classic example of a song written almost 300 years ago, my times of sorrow and of joy. I think most of the songs being written today are just my times of joy. This is my times of sorrow and of joy. So this accords more with real life experience. Look at verse 1. My times of sorrow and of joy, great God, are in thy hand. My choicest comforts come from thee and go at thy command. In other words, he is in charge. He is in control. Look at verse 2. If thou shouldst take them all away, yet would I not repine, that means would I not be discontent, would I not fret, before they were possessed by me, they were entirely thine. And so God is giving us things in this world in order to train us, to prepare us. Now look at the final verse. Here perfect bliss can ne'er be found. The honey is mixed with gall, that is with bitterness. Midst changing scenes and dying friends, be thou my all in all. So this hymn is teaching us our life is from God and our life is for God. In the case of Israel, God could have put these people on the express lane straight to Palestine. He could have done that. But his intention was to test them for 40 years in such a way that their very survival was on the line. Look at verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. If you're a Bible reader, you're familiar with the manna that came from heaven. I remember years ago uh, as a university student, before I became a believer, sitting in a class on the Old Testament where the professor actually said that manna is a naturally occurring phenomenon in the Sinai region. But that was news to the Israelites. After all, that word manna simply means what is it? They were mystified. It was sweetbread, kind of like little bits of French pastry alighting on the ground. The Psalms called it the food of angels. Skeptics speculate that insects may naturally exude superfluous sugar in the form of whitish globules. In other words, there may be a natural explanation for it. But why did it stop every Sabbath? And how, on the Sabbath, was it preserved miraculously for two days without rotting? And why, when they finally entered the Promised Land, did it immediately stop? Friends, the truth is, the manna was a miracle from God. And it was also a test 
from God. You see, they were not to hoard it. They were to trust God for their daily bread. And in all of this, God was teaching them. He was showing them that only He could give them what they really need to survive. So here was the true lesson. He let them hunger. Then He gave them manna. Verse 3, look at the middle of the verse. That He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God, God would preserve them in the howling wilderness, or nobody would. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Imagine wearing the same shoes for decades. But there's a more basic need than water or food or shoes, or clothing. The most basic need is God's Word that ultimately sustains us, keeps us alive, gives us hope. So a shortage of water, a shortage of food, or clothing, or money, or time, is never an excuse to disregard what God has said. God was teaching them the priority of His Word above all else. It was by hearing His Word, heeding His Word, that verse 1, you will live and multiply. That doesn't mean you will just happen to survive there. No, you will live in the sense of a life of abundance, enjoying God's blessing in the good land that He was promising them. And what a land it was. Did you see the description in verse 7? For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills a land of wheat and barley, all kinds of plenty. You know, just last week I was in southern Jordan and I was in the proximity of this wilderness area, the area where the people of Israel would have transited. It was down near the Gulf of Aqaba where I was. It was Wadi Rum and close to Petra. And what struck me was how rugged, how inhospitable, how barren this was. I mean, it was like a desert, but then rocks would crop up. and It was desolate, beautiful in its desolation, but not the kind of place you would really want to camp out more than a night or two. Moses was saying, remember what the Lord did when you were there. Remember the manna. Remember the shoes that did not wear out. And in this way, as they remembered what he had done, they would trust him. They would obey Him. They would not only survive, but thrive in the promised land. And friends, we're no different. You and I are in the same boat, just like them on the plains of Moab. You and I need regular reminders. I mean, isn't that why we're here today? Don't we fundamentally gather as a church because week after week we need to be reprogrammed. We need to be reminded of fundamental truths. This is why when we gather on Sunday mornings, we devote a significant amount of time and effort to reading and considering a portion of God's Word. Because God, through His inspired Scripture, is reminding us of these things. I mean, this is why we observe the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. This is why we rehearse the gospel in the songs we sing. If we don't cultivate a memory of what God has done, our hearts will grow cold. These things will seem more distant and we'll lose interest. Do you know that one ordinary sermon can actually stir us up? Move us to continue in the faith. God wanted these people to rehearse the Old Testament gospel, deliverance out of Egypt, in the same way that He wants you and me to rehearse the ultimate gospel, the one to which the Exodus pointed, namely, deliverance from slavery to sin. And this is what it means, brothers and sisters, for us to be an evangelical church. We recognize that for us as individuals and for us as a congregation, God's Word is essential for our survival, and not just some of it. Look at verse 3. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. No exceptions. No reservations. As the Apostle Paul would say, 
All Scripture is God-breathed. And so we give ourselves to the study of the whole Bible. We expose ourselves to the whole of it, not just the comfortable bits. And so if you've ever looked at our sermon cards that we prepare every trimester, you know, we're covering different genre of Scripture. So we're spending time in the Law of Moses. We're spending time in the Gospels. We're touching on the epistles. The whole counsel of God is what we desire. Why? Because God has spoken. We're called to listen, hear, obey, all of it. Friends, let's never be casual in the way we listen to sermons. You know, the essence of pride is when we simply refuse to listen. When we ignore His Word, we reject Him personally. And this is why, as a church, we don't feel pressure to organize ourselves around the best business practices. We don't feel bound to follow the latest fads or styles from the church growth movement. Our authority is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what motivated our founders 50 years ago when they called themselves the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. They could have joined the Catholic Church. They could have begun worshiping with the Anglicans. But they formed ECCD. Now, if you're not a believer, understand this. People can't figure out God on their own through crystals, through astrology, through social media polls. If we're going to know God, He's going to have to reveal Himself. He tells us who He is and how He wants us to live. Friends, the Bible is God preaching to us. And so, the Bible should be central in our life as a congregation. Gustav Wingren said, preaching is not just about a Christ of the past, but is a mouth through which the Christ of the present offers us life today. And not just in the weekly sermon, but in our conversations after church, in our care life groups throughout the week, in our family worship times, discussions over lunch, ladies' ministry, student Bible studies in schools and food courts. Why do we read God's Word? Because we desire Christ. We want communion with Him. And this is the point of contact between heaven and earth. We remember Him. And that's the only way we're going to make it into the promised land. By remembering. And secondly, by refusing to forget. So this is the second point of the sermon, refusing to forget what we already know. You see, soon enough, these people would enter into a new situation, and they would face a different trial. Not the trial of poverty, but the trial of plenty. Look at verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. So God was going to be true to His promises. These people were going to make it into the promised land. And then what? Well, things would return, return to normal. They would have homes and farms and jobs and ease. And what then? Look at verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Now, I can't imagine anyone here today actually saying that out loud. Notice it says, only in your heart. But whether you say it or not, you think it. It creeps into your consciousness. My power did this. My might got me this wealth. I deserve this. After all, I earned it. But it's not true. Look at verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. 
So in the same way that we depend on God for our daily bread, so we depend on God for our monthly paycheck. He's the one who enables us to get wealth. All of it is His, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Brothers and sisters, beware of pride. Beware of allowing the subtle suggestion to enter your mind that the success that you enjoy in life, whether prestige or position or finances, is somehow ultimately the work that you've done. And you begin to take credit for it. You know, this could happen to us as a church, I think. Just think, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Well, it was a great time of celebration, and it would be easy for us to say, look at all that we've done. Look at how far we've come in 50 years. All the accomplishments, as though it was really due to our effort, as though it was due to our wisdom or goodness. And the same goes for you individually, doesn't it? When you forget God, then the runner-up God takes his place. That's you. Very easy to take credit. You know, that Bible word, faith, faith means you're trusting in someone else. That's all it means. You have renounced self-trust, you've renounced self-reliance, and you're trusting in someone else. Stephen Charnock said, a proud faith is as much a contradiction in terms as a humble devil. I wonder, is there anyone here today who is beginning to forget what God has done for you? You know, forgetfulness is not just absent-mindedness. It's unbelief. It's when we look for joy in the gift instead of the giver of the gift. And we open ourselves up to all kinds of false gods. Verse 19. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. The result would be catastrophic. They would be wiped out. They would be sent far away into exile as actually happened. Verse 20. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So, my friends, what is the antidote to pride? What's the alternative to going after false gods and perishing in the way, attracting God's judgment? It's simply this, to remember the Lord your God and to refuse to forget. Well, that's the passage. Three questions in closing. As we conclude, three questions. Here is question number one. Will you trust God when He leads you through the desert? How did the people respond? When they were there in the wilderness, well, they targeted Moses' leadership. They grumbled against God. They interpreted their experiences in all the wrong ways. They doubted God. So much so that the prior generation wanted to go back to Egypt. When all the while, a loving God was teaching, humbling, preparing them for the promised land. In the hard trials of the desert, God was actually, verse 16, doing good. Doing good to these people. But they didn't see that. Why not? Is it because they felt entitled to an easy express ride into Canaan? Is it because they preferred comfort and ease over holiness and obedience? Friends, you and I are in the wilderness too. We are in the same situation as them. We too are sojourning through a dangerous and fallen world, and you and I can rest assured that we will encounter even more trials than we have thus far. Disappointments in marriage, financial pressures, relationship troubles, worries in the workplace, the stress of parenting, 
I wonder, are you beginning to question the goodness of God in your life because of the trials that you're undergoing? Is anyone here being tempted to go back to Egypt? Friends, in your trials, remember, God has not forgotten you. It's not like he's, so, he's busy with managing affairs on the other side of the world that he's forgotten about your circumstances. In fact, he has you exactly where he wants you. Now, I admit, suffering is confusing when we're in the midst of it. I don't have all the answers to the difficulties of suffering. Thomas Watson explained, in a watch, the wheels seem to move contrary to one another, but all carry on the motions of the watch. So things that seem to move cross to the godly, yet by the wonderful providence of God, work for their good. Well, just as it was here. Verse 16, he was doing all this for their ultimate good. Friends, let's continue to trust God, even in the wildernesses of life. Question number two. How should we remember? Exactly how should we remember? Did you notice the way Moses remembered? What exactly did he remember? Look at verse 14. I've been struck by this in chapter after chapter of Deuteronomy. Look at verse 14 there. He says, don't forget the Lord your God. And what does he say next? Which God? The God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So he was reflecting back on a God who was a liberator and a leader. He was a liberator in the sense that he delivered them out of bondage, but then he stayed with them. He led them through the wilderness in remarkable ways. Verse 15, with all of its fiery serpents and scorpions. You find those in the book of Numbers. If you go back and read Numbers 20 and 21, you'll see when the people were grumbling and complaining, God actually disciplined them by sending poisonous serpents to afflict them. And many people died. And when they cried out, God told Moses to do something very unusual. He told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to hoist it up on a pole. And when the people were bitten, the serpent... They were to look up at the serpent, and they would be healed. Now, exactly how this happened, or why the healing occurred, we can't say. It was miraculous. What's interesting, though, is that the cure, the fiery serpent on the pole, merely look at it and be healed, that was an unclean animal, the snake. Theologically, it represented sin, recalling the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So there was that, and then there was the thing with the water coming out of the flinty rock. On two occasions, God actually supplied them with water in this barren, desolate wasteland. And then, of course, the manna continuing for 40 years. Amazing generosity to a people who did not deserve it. Here is a God who does good to his people, even when they deserve just the opposite. Well, in all of this, Moses was gospel-centered. Moses was reflecting on the undeserved blessings of God. Friends, this is the reminder that we need. We need to be gospel-centered. I mean, isn't that why we began the service this morning by reading together the Nicene Creed? This is a rehearsal of solid gospel truth, rehearsing the mighty works of God as churches have done for more than a millennium. And with all of our backgrounds and all of our denominations and personal preferences, how can we as a church remain united? How can we possibly avoid fraying and unraveling at the seams? Only in this way, by keeping the gospel remembrance center of our life. Not our secondary preferences, not our favorite worship styles, no. Keep the main thing, the main thing. The evangel, the gospel, is not only what saves us, 
It's what preserves us to the end. So let's never assume that we know the gospel. Let's never just assume, well, we've been there, let's graduate on to deeper things. No, that isn't the way that it happens in the New Testament. Keep the gospel front and center in your care life groups, in your marriages, in your family worship, in your songs that you sing, in your church. This is how we remember God. This is how we abide in Christ. And then just one last question. The last question is actually the most important one. Is your obedience good enough? How can you be sure? The Gospels tell us of the time when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. We considered it last week when Richard preached from Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus was out there in the wilderness 40 days, very interesting, one day for each year that the people of Israel were in the wilderness. Both were tested, both in the wilderness, both were hungry. That can't be an accident. Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's not that eating bread is a bad thing inherently. It's the way that he was told to go about it. Through the exercise of miraculous power, to provide for his comfort and ease, was that the mission of the Messiah? Just a raw demonstration of miraculous power? Would Jesus demand relief right now, the way he wanted it, just like Israel had? Just like you and I do. Or would Jesus take the path of humility and suffering that the Father had charted out for him? Jesus, remember, when the Son of God came into this world, he had set aside his divine prerogatives. He remained fully God, but during his earthly ministry, he would rely solely on his Father's provision through the Holy Spirit. And so, to do a miracle, to aid his own comfort, that would have been to distrust his Father in heaven. There he was, at the very edge of starvation. And this was his Father's will. Jesus wanted bread, all right, you can be sure. But in what way? Only in fellowship with his Father. And so he answered Satan, it is written. And what an appeal to scriptural authority that is. Consider these words. Jesus, speaking to the serpent, it is written. And then he quotes our verse, chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus was the true Israel. He was the faithful son, tempted one day for every year that Israel was in the wilderness. But where Israel failed, Jesus was obedient. Where you and I have failed, Jesus was obedient and he did so for us Jesus obeyed in our place as our substitute so is your obedience good enough my friend only if you are hidden in Christ only if you are in union with him only if his righteousness has been given to you here is a savior here is a substitute who did obey perfect, perfectly, obedient even to the point of death. Do you remember that snake in the desert? The bronze serpent that was hoisted up onto the pole? Well, in the same way, Jesus would be hoisted up onto a Roman cross. You see the comparison there. Poison pulsating through their bodies. The dying victims look up at the snake. And they're healed. 
And so we, poisoned with a venom much more serious than theirs, look up to Christ crucified and find healing and cleansing because he paid the penalty. He was dead, buried. Then God raised him from the dead. Jesus spoke in John chapter 3. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know, sitting here among us today, there are many of us who are proud and pious and religious on the one hand. And then there are other kinds of people here with us today who are rebellious and wayward and guilt-ridden on the other hand. No matter. This is a Savior great enough for all of us. Regardless of our background, regardless of the quality and nature of our guilt, all of us need a Savior. We need to be rescued from the guilt of our sin, but Jesus' promise is, everyone who looks to me, hoisted on the Roman cross, will be saved. You see, our deepest need is not physical food, but spiritual life. One time, Jesus was in another desolate place, and he supplied the people of Israel with bread, kind of as a parable for how God would sustain his people. But Israel, unknowing, unbelieving, well, they just clamored for more bread. They wanted another free lunch. They thought the Messiah was perhaps reinstituting the bread of Moses. And then Jesus said, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, who gives life to the world. And they replied, well, give us more bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is the good news. If you're here this morning as one who's not a Christian, well, this is our message. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in his death and resurrection, you, just like all of us, utterly unworthy of anything remotely related to it, can be reconciled with God and can receive the free gift of eternal life, bliss in the presence of God, hope, reconciliation. You don't have to be a spiritual failure. Jesus Christ came to free us from the penalty of sin and also the power of sin. So for those of you who are believers, remember, we began today by saying that obedience is a necessity in the Christian life. It's not an option. That's very clear. Not that obeying makes you a Christian. It's not that at all. Rather, obedience is evidence that you already are a Christian. You've been made new. You've received a new nature, a new heart. Jesus not only saves his people, he transforms his people by his spirit. So the root of salvation is the shed blood of Christ hoisted for us on the cross. The fruit of salvation is a changed life, new affections, just like Moses said, just like Jesus said, just like James said, just like the Apostle Paul said, be doers of the word, not only hearers. So our lives are silent sermons. Our lives, for all of us who are members of this congregation, are sermons to the world of what it means to know Christ. So, what are people reading in your life? How's the sermon going as you live it out? Have you been changed by Christ and His Spirit? Are you living in a new way? I'm not saying Christians are morally perfect. Far from it. We all stumble in many ways. Sometimes we lapse badly in sin. That's true. We're very weak. But real believers, understand this, real believers repent of their sin. 
They don't continue in that pathway. And over time, their lives will be noticeably, observably, substantially different. J.C. Ryle said this of genuine believers. They press toward it if they do not reach it. They may not attain to it, but they always aim at it. It is what they strive and labor to be if it is not what they are. Namely, holy, fundamentally obedient. Friends, all of us fall short. None of us finally measures up in and of himself. We are dependent on the imputed righteousness of Christ. We cling to him. And yet those of us who are in him have received a new life. So let's be people who pray like George Whitfield did. Lord, help me begin to begin. Often sorrow, often woe. Onward, Christian. Onward, go. Bear the toil. Maintain the strife. Strengthened with the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us with the heavenly manna each time we gather, each time we approach your holy word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present among us, that you would be at work granting the conviction of sin, granting restored vision of your holiness and of our need, encouraging us in gospel hope about evangelical obedience empowered by the Spirit in union with Christ. Help us to be people whose lives are marked, set apart, observably different. And in this, may your gospel advance through us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final song is All I Have is Christ. Let's stand and sing.